Okay. Matthew chapter 25. We're going to finish out the chapter this morning with a, really it's a, probably a pretty familiar text to us. Matthew 25, starting with verse 41. We'll get there in just a moment. Just as a, a quick way of review, because things are connected. Um, in fact, someone came up to me after last week's sermon and just said, I'd never really seen the connection before between the parable of the talents and the parable of the, the bridegroom, the bridesmaids. They never, they were right there. So I, I know I've seen them there, but it just seemed odd in their placement. And so as we, as we talked about this last week, um, they were encouraged. They said, I hadn't seen that. It's good to know that there's that consistency, cohesion there. And it is. I mean, Jesus has a point in saying these things, obviously. So as, as a way of review, just want to remind us that, that we are currently living, dwelling, existing now in the time between the engagement and the wedding day. Remember, Christ came. That's the engagement. The wedding day is when he comes back for his people. Um, it is a, and as, as we talked about it a couple weeks ago, there's a almost a strange tension that we live in right now with the the already Christ has come and yet the not yet he's coming again. Uh, the parable that we looked at last week of the talents really forces us to ask this question, what am I doing with what God has given me? Simply put, God wants your heart. He wants your heart. And when he has your heart, he's going to have all the things that you do along with that, as we'll get into more today. The overarching point of the last two parables that we looked at that I mentioned was really the same. And, and it was this, that the five bridesmaids, they weren't ready for the groom's arrival. The wicked servant wasn't ready for the master to return Jesus is returning, the groom, the master is returning. Are you ready? Don't be caught off guard like they were. Are we going to be doing the things that he told us to do while we're waiting? In our text today, Jesus doesn't necessarily shift his focus. He's still talking about the same kinds of things, but he emphasizes instead, I think, the practical application of being ready of getting ready and staying ready and what we're to be doing. So as we read it here now, you're going to see a, a pretty strong connection between caring for others. You might hear me refer to that as acts of mercy, um, good works. Um, you're going to see a strong connection between caring for others and true salvation. It's spelled out here in the text. Let's look at it together. Matthew chapter 25, starting with verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, 
When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Verse 41. So then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You curse, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's. Ask God's blessing on his word. Lord, bless this, this your word to us. We are your people, and so we are in desperate need of your word, day in and day out. In fact, moment by moment, Jesus said we cannot live by anything else but your word alone, every word. And so, Lord, we hang on your word today. In fact, as, as we see, Lord, our eternity hangs on what you've said today. Give us uh, ears to hear in your name. Amen. First of all, this is, a, this is another parable that Jesus gives. Okay? He begins it by saying that it concerns his return in glory to set up his kingdom. Look back right there at the first verse we looked at, verse 31. This is talking about when he comes back in his glory. And the first thing I want us to notice here is that every person ever created will stand before God at the judgment. Don't miss that. Okay? That will happen. It has happened. It's coming. Every person ever created will stand before God in this way, uh, regardless of your age, regardless of a person's race, regardless of gender, ability, location, wealth. According to Jesus, every person will stand before God and receive judgment. Jesus, more or less, funnels every human being down into one of two groups, doesn't he? I think it's important to notice here, too, there's not a third option. There's not people that once were sheep that are now goats. There's not people that once were goats that are now sheep in this sense. There's one of two options. At the judgment day, there's one of two options, goat or sheep. There's no special holding place where people go to atone for their sins. There's no offer of a second chance listed here at all. There's only judgment. I want us to notice that, but I don't want us to get stuck on it necessarily. Uh, Judgment is coming with Christ's return, but those who have trusted in Christ's sacrifice have nothing to fear. You have no reason to dread that day. Praise God for that. The sheep are welcomed, as we see at the very end, the sheep are welcomed into what? Eternal life. The joy of the father, the joy of the master, but goats are condemned and sent away to eternal life in hell. I want us to notice one more thing as we work through this together. Jesus absolutely, without a question in his mind, teaches that 
every person not only will stand before God in judgment, but will spend eternity somewhere. Just let that sink in for a second. And maybe it has for you. But let that sink in for your loved ones that don't know Christ. Every person will spend eternity somewhere because God created us to be eternal beings. I want us to see that. Because the the predominant culture in America says the exact opposite, right? Live for the here and now because this life is all that matters. YOLO. Some of you older folks may not know what that means. You only live once. YOLO, that's the big saying. Actually, that's probably past now at this point. But uh, Christ's teaching is in direct opposition to that philosophy. He says, think about eternity. Think about um, the things above, right? He says, set your minds on things above. You, we need to have a long view in mind. We need to think on eternity often. We cannot just trust and take in only what we see in the here and now. There's something else beyond this life. And Jesus isn't necessarily, that's not necessarily the point of the passage, but I want us to notice that as we start to figure it out and apply it here. If we don't understand that there's more to this life than what's just here and now, we're going to miss eternity in heaven because eternity is bound up in each one of us. We will spend forever somewhere. And Jesus explains in this parable that the sheep are going to spend eternity in heaven, his kingdom, and the goats are sent to hell. So what is the difference? This is what we really need to know. What's the difference between a sheep and a goat? Well, Jason talked about some of the practical differences between sheep and goats. But if what Jesus is saying about eternity is true and where these two groups of people spend that eternity, then we definitely want to, I would assume at least, we definitely want to know how to be a sheep and not a goat. And so for this reason, I think Jesus gets pretty specific. Who are the sheep? Well, if you, if you look at John chapter 10, this is a great chapter. You can flip there if you want. Um, Your notes have several passages listed there. But Jesus refers to himself as the shepherd, the great shepherd. His sheep are those who hear and follow the call of the shepherd, Jesus. So in John 10, he, I mean, almost in every verse, he refers to himself as a shepherd. The the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. John 10, 4, when he is brought out, all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And you can see there, I copy and forgot to paste the proper verse. But in verse 14, he says something very similar. In verse 15, just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. For there is one flock, one shepherd. The sheep Jesus is talking about in Matthew 25 are those who hear his voice and follow him. Those are the sheep. This is not complicated. Remember back at the beginning after in Matthew specifically, after the genealogy, after all of the birth records, 
In chapter 4, Jesus finds Peter and Andrew and James and John. And what are they doing? They're fishing. They're on a boat, some of them with their dad. And all he says is, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And what do they do? They don't get their calendar out and look and say, well, in a couple weeks, you know, the fishing season will be a little bit more died down. I think that'll be a good time, Jesus. I'll take a rain check and I'll come back and see you then. They drop what they're doing immediately, Matthew says, immediately they follow him. Sheep are those followers of Christ who abandon their own way, their old way of life, and who are devoted to following Jesus. They abandon what they were doing, and then their focus now is on Christ. That, that's a simple concept. We get it. I understand that. And yet, I, I wonder in my own heart if I really do get it. Because how, of how often I follow other things. And I imagine it's similar for you. But the sheep are given the reward of eternal life in heaven. And Jesus quickly gives the reason for this reward. It's that they cared for the least of these. And it's not just the least of these, but notice those other couple of words there. The least of these, my brothers, in verse 40. The difference Jesus focuses on is how they treated the least of these. How they treated his disciples, his brothers. So take note, this is not everybody here right now. This is not every person that suffers. That's not the least of these. Jesus does not call those opposed to him his brothers. If you look back at Matthew 12, verse 49 and 50, Jesus it says of him, and stretching out his hand toward his disciples, pointing at them, he says, here are my, mo- my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus says in our chapter today, verse 20, verse, chapter 25, verse 40, that caring for the least of these, his brothers, Christians, believers, disciples, is like caring for him. You guys remember Saul when he was still persecuting Christians? He was on his way to Damascus and uh, a bright light and a voice knocked him down. Almost, you can imagine, pinning him to the ground. And what did, what did it say? What did God say to Saul? He said, Saul, why do you persecute me? Okay, that situation alone uh, should help us understand that Jesus identifies as closely as possible as he can with his people, with Christians, right? So when they were, when Paul, Saul, was persecuting Christians, it was as if he was persecuting Christ, okay? In fact, back in chapter 10 of Matthew, verse 42, Jesus said, whoever gives one of these little ones, the least of these, even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward because he is a disciple. So in other words, I think we can condense this down to understand that Jesus is saying that true Christians care for other Christians simply because they are Christians. Okay? Don't misunderstand what this is saying, what I'm saying. Jesus is not teaching 
any kind of socialistic principle here where everybody shares all of their stuff and everybody gets an equal amount no matter how much. That's not what he's getting at. Um, as we mentioned last week, Jesus is more concerned with your heart than your bank account, but how you use what you have is an indication of how you're following him. It's an indication of what kind of hold he has on your life. And Jesus is saying here that one of the main ways that your faith is shown to be real is how you care for other Christians. In fact, I think we could make this argument that in this parable, eternity, heaven and hell, hang on what you do. In other New Testament writings, uh, they make the same point. In fact, if you've got your Bible, turn to James chapter 2 with me. Our students have just finished going through the book of James. Right after Hebrews, James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. You've probably heard this text before. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now he gives an example. For instance, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it, if it does not have works, is what? Is dead. Faith without works is dead. A brother or sister is poorly clothed, James says. This is a disciple. This is a Christian, a believer. And here's, here's something I want us to see and understand. If, if we don't ever bear the fruit of practical love and care towards brothers and sisters in our faith, then our faith is dead. If, if our heart never goes out to a brother or sister who's in need, even if we have no connection to them except Christ, then our faith is dead, James is saying. And if our faith is dead, then we're not saved. And that is indeed the whole point of the text from Matthew 25. Jesus is helping us understand what saving faith, what genuine, real faith in Christ looks like on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis. So acts of mercy, good works, love towards a brother and sister will at some point, to some degree, in some way, freely flow towards other Christians simply because they're Christians. And if it doesn't, then there's a chance that we're being deceived about the true condition of our heart. So this has to lead us to ask the question, do you love your brothers and sisters enough in Christ to sacrifice for them? Now, in the early church, if we want to stick to the early church model, If a family was in need, another family in the church would go sell land and bring the money and give it to the apostles to give out accordingly. I'm not necessarily suggesting that we go to that model, but I think the principle applies in 2019. 
if a brother or sister in our church is hurting, and this applies um, financially, but I think it applies emotionally, um, physically, our hearts should run to them. We should go because we love them, because we have the same Father. So do we have enough love to sacrifice for our brothers and sisters? I would contend that real faith will be moved to some kind of action when we see a need among us. So let me just pause for a second and probably answer, ask and answer a question that many of you are probably thinking right now. Okay, we should love our brothers, but then what does that mean that we shouldn't love those outside of the faith? Um, no, absolutely not. Jesus, in fact, has a lot to say about this very thing. Look at Luke chapter 6. He's teaching us in Matthew 25 that we ought to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But in Luke chapter 6, same guy, same Jesus teaching here. Chapter 6, verse 27 and following, he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. Keep reading though. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But instead, love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is, a, he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Okay, this rounds out our understanding of this text a little bit better. We absolutely are to extend love and care to the brothers because these are the least of these. It's as if we're doing them for Christ. And yet he says right here, two different times in the text that we read from Luke chapter 6, love your enemies, do good to them. We are supposed to show mercy to our brothers and sisters when they suffer and are in need. That's what families do. It's right to do that. But if we only love our family, if we only sacrifice to relieve the suffering of our family, I think we're at risk here of being no different, no better than an unbeliever, Jesus says. If instead we're real disciples disciples of Jesus, if we are to be a true church, then we will be compelled to show mercy to some suffering people precisely because they're Christians. And we will be compelled to show mercy to some people because they're not Christians. Do you see the pattern here? Mercy extends beyond the categories that we put them in. In doing this, we are like our Heavenly Father when we love His children and when we love His enemies. The outpouring of that love means doing good to them. Like He says in Luke 6, 
like he says in Matthew 25, in those ways of giving a cold cup of water, of visiting them when they're sick or in prison, of giving them clothes, of giving them food. And this takes us back to the parable of the talents from last week that says, what you do with what you have matters. It does. Absolutely does. It's not all that matters, but it absolutely matters. And look at the outcome in our Back in Matthew 25, look at the outcome for those who do not show mercy. Specifically, verse 41. This is not a pretty picture. And I want us to understand that, that hell, is not, hell is not some party of a bunch of non-Christians and their friends sitting around playing cards, drinking, like parties are here on earth oftentimes. This is not what hell will be like. Um, if you've been a Christian for a while and you've talked with people who don't know Christ for very often, you get that response a lot of times. Well, I, I'm okay with going to hell because that's where all my friends are going to be. Like, like that's going to relieve the suffering and the pain of having friends there. Um, this is not the reality, though, of what Jesus paints here. He says that those who reject Christ will be eternally separated from God in a real place that was designed not necessarily for people, but for who? The devil and his angels. Hell is not a place. This is interesting. I read this this week. Hell is not a place where the devil torments sinners. It's a place where he is tormented right alongside of sinners. Another writer said, What a destiny to spend eternity shoulder to shoulder with an evil being whose one goal has been to defy God and to bring others to share in his suffering forever. Now, I, w- I want to be clear. There's no shock value intended here. What Jesus is teaching about heaven and hell, there's no shock value intended. Um, I grew up in a Baptist church and in an age when that sort of thing was used in youth ministry. And we would go to the reality houses instead of the haunted houses. And they would, they would scare you into faith, so to speak. Um, I hope we understand that, that salvation doesn't work that way. Um, it's an act of the spirit, not an act of fear. Uh, and, and so there's no shock value intended about talking about hell. However, Jesus mentions it as a real place. A real place that some people, and he lists in other places, a lot of people, many people, the majority of people will spend eternity. That road is wide. That road is easy. If we're honest, these things about heaven and about hell are are pretty overwhelming when you think about it. I think it's designed to be that way. Thinking about heavy things like this really goes against the grain of what we're comfortable with though. And we, we ha- we always wonder, well, is this really true? Is it real? Is, is heaven a real place? Will you, will someone who rejects Christ really spend eternity away from God? The reality is that if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we don't have to worry about it. If we don't celebrate Easter for his resurrection, then we don't really have to worry about believing these difficult truths. But if Jesus is who he said he is, and he did the things that he said he did, if he did conquer death, then we have to embrace everything he told us about himself. It all is real. And if it's real and he's really God, we have to submit to his authority. 
and we have to submit to his rule. What if all this talk about life and death, about heaven and hell, is just a bunch of baloney? What if it's not true? I've heard it said this way, and I'll paraphrase a little bit. You may have heard this before, but if, it's tr- if, if what we believe about God is not true, then Christians will have lived their lives here on earth morally, serving their brothers and sisters, serving other people, putting others in front of themselves, and will have lived a good life. But for the non-Christian, if all of this stuff is true and you reject Christ, then rejecting him will earn them an eternity in hell apart from God, rubbing shoulders with Satan. There, there's a, it's an important thing to think through. If Christians are wrong, we've lived a good life serving other people. But if non-Christians are wrong, eternity hangs in the balance. Our prayer as Christians who care about you, about your loved ones, about those in this community who are without Christ, is that they would turn to him today. That you would trust in Christ today and be assured of your eternity with God in heaven. You can be assured of that, and we'd love to talk with you more about how. One more thing before we close this morning. A a casual reading of this text might lead us to think, as Jason read earlier, that this suggests that salvation is earned by the good works that we do for other people. Okay? Um, Caring for the needs, acts of mercy. Uh, There are belief systems out there that, that would lend you to let you think that. And if you just read this text uh, casually, you might get that impression. But I want us to understand, look back at the text, Matthew chapter 25. The sheep had compassion. They gave food, they gave drink, they gave clothing to the needy, and they were saved. The goats did none of those things, and so they were condemned to hell. So the seemingly logical cause and effect is meet people's needs and go to heaven, earn salvation, Refuse to meet people's needs and be condemned and and go to hell. But let me be as clear as I can. Jesus is not teaching works-based theology here. Keep in mind that the Bible clearly and repeatedly says and teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not through our good works. And I've listed in your notes um, a handful or more of, of texts, biblical texts that I'd encourage you to look up afterwards today that reinforce that idea. I, I, I do that so that you can consult the whole counsel of God on this and not just take my word for it and not just take one verse out of context. Look at it all together and understand. If we just look at our text today in Matthew 25, though, I think Jesus still makes this clear because he says that the salvation of the sheep is actually not based on their good works. Look at verse 34, Matthew 25, verse 34. It says that their inheritance was theirs since the creation of the world. It has nothing to do with their good works. It was prepared beforehand. This is, this is incredible. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10, reinforces this very same idea. I'll read it to you, but you all know this. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For where is workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
has nothing to do with their works. Good works are not the cause of salvation. They're the effect of it. Right? Good works are not the cause of salvation. They are, they are the effect of salvation. As Christians, we become like Christ. Not in necessarily sinless perfection on this earth, but we are being formed more and more into his image. Romans 8, 28, 29, spell that out. On Wednesday nights during our finance study, oftentimes our, some of the kids go down and they have this kids club. And Stephanie and Nikki have been leading them. They've been learning the fruit of the Spirit. And so I want to, we're going to get into that text. I want to ask if there are any members of the kids club to come on up and they're going to say Galatians 5.22 to you. Come on up, guys. Come stand up here with me. When, I, when we talk about becoming like Christ, this is part of it. Nice. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Very good. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. Just like what they said. Good works in a Christian's life are the direct overflow of the traits that they just quoted. All of those things. That is, that's where the good works come from. And they're only acceptable to God because of the relationship that exists between the servant and the master, the saved and their savior, the sheep and the shepherd. That's what makes them good works. The core message of the parable that we looked at this morning is that God's people will actively love others. God's people will actively love others. Good works, caring for those in need, acts of mercy will result from a relationship with the shepherd. It's going to happen. Followers of Christ will treat others with kindness, serving them as if they were serving Christ himself. Because we don't often know the heart of a person. So we see someone in need. Um, Generally, I wouldn't suggest going up and asking for their testimony and make sure that they're a Christian and have marked off these boxes before we serve them. God hasn't always called us to do that, but he has called us to serve. He has called us to care and Christians will do this. Now, those who don't know Christ oftentimes live in the opposite manner. It's true that, that non-Christians can do good works. It can, that it can, they can perform acts of kindness and show mercy and have charity in their hearts. They can be moral and they can be caring, but their hearts are not right with God. And so the things that they do, their actions are not for the purpose of honoring and pleasing the Savior. Christians don't care for people around them because they want to go to heaven. Christians care for people around them because Jesus has changed their heart. Last passage I want us to turn to, 1 John chapter 3. I could have spent a lot of our discussion today in first John, but I just want to close first John chapter three, verses 16 through 18. I'll give you a second to turn there. 
1 John chapter 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. God's people will actively love others. This is the fruit. Love to others is the fruit of a heart that's been changed by Christ. And as we tie this back to what Jesus is saying about be ready. Don't get caught off guard, brothers and sisters. Be ready. And part of being ready, part of the fruit that's of, of the heart that's been changed by Christ is this, that we show love to the brothers. In fact, Jesus says, people will know that you are my disciples by what? By your love for one another. We will actively love others. And this, the fruit of a heart that's been changed by Christ, this is the fundamental way that we prepare for the coming of Christ. We act like him. The news, our Facebook feeds, your Twitter feed is full of examples of people claiming to be Christians that do not love people in this way. I I pray that our church, that people in our community see members of Ramsey Creek not as, well, I have to be a member of that church to be loved by them. Not as, well, I have to go, I have to send my kids to Clopton to be loved by them. Not as I have to, you know, dress a certain way to be loved by them. But people, when they think of members of Ramsey Creek, when they think of you all, that they think, man, that person loves me. And they don't have to. And we love that way because we've been loved that way. Let's pray. God, only you, only you started loving people that way. Um, We are able to, to a degree, based on your love for us. But Lord, if you had not come, if you had not sent your son, we wouldn't know this kind of love. We, we would be goats forever, uh, regularly and deservedly sent away from you for eternity to be with Satan and his angels. And yet, Lord, while we were still sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. Lord, allow us to see this, this, the truth of this parable for what it is. Lord, we will stand before you. Our loved ones will stand before you one day. What will we stand on? Will we stand on the hope that our good works will outweigh our bad? Or will we stand on the truth that no matter how many good works we do, we will never compare to what Christ has done. And that's what matters, what Christ has done. So we thank you. We give you praise and honor for the sacrifice of Jesus. Lord, let that be the motivating factor that we would go and do likewise. Lord, help our church love one another, love the lost, because you've loved us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.